Hi there, and welcome to the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. My name is Patrick Francie, and I'm the CEO of the Real Estate Investment Network. In addition to being a business owner, I'm also a real estate investor, I'm a coach, I'm a husband, I'm a very proud grandfather. And along with that, I'm also committed to stretching beyond what I've already achieved and of living a fulfilled life by continuing to make a positive difference in the world. I invite you to join me to listen in on the Everyday Millionaire podcast as I interview and have conversations with seemingly ordinary individuals who have achieved some pretty extraordinary results, whether it be in their life, in their business, in real estate. And it's here where I'm going to delve into the details of their journey, along with the paths they've traveled to get where they are today and, as importantly, where they intend to go in the future. My guests are here to inspire. They're here to help you learn by talking about what's real for them, both in their wins and in their challenges, from the life and the lifestyle they live to the person they had to become along the way in creating and building their financial futures for themselves and their families. Before I begin this episode, I'll start by first thanking you for listening in and for your support and the feedback you provide us on the show, as well as to ask you to please continue to send your comments, your suggestions, or your questions directly to me at CEO at RainCanada.com. That is CEO at R-E-I-N Canada.com. And if you're inclined, please share this podcast with your friends, your family, and with people you know, or perhaps even people you don't know. Rate the show and comment on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or whatever platform you happen to use to listen in. And while you're at it, please follow me on the Everyday Millionaire Facebook page. So thanks again for the feedback you provide us. It's definitely appreciated. Okay, let's get on with this show and have a conversation with today's guest. My guest today, Jonathan Dio, has led an independent financial planning firm since 2002. He is the founder of his wealth management firm, Mindful Money, where he and his team work one-on-one with hundreds of families and foundations. Mindful Money offers a clear philosophy and simple step to financial success using tools to mindfully overcome emotional and cognitive biases related to money. Jonathan is passionate about education of individuals to make core values-based decisions and a being goal-focused with a clear plan to achieve those goals. His personal mission is to touch 1 million lives in 10 years with his Mindful Money financial education courses. Jonathan has been a financial advisor for over 25 years. He's managed investments at a variety of Wall Street companies before founding his own financial planning firm. He's a contributor on personal finance matters from the Huffington Post and the Business Insiders, just to name a couple, and he's been featured in the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times. To add to all of that, Jonathan is a 25-year meditation practitioner and currently lives in Berkeley with his wife and two children. Let's get this show started. Jonathan Dio, welcome to the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for being here. Thanks for letting me have come on, Patrick. Well, you listen, I'm excited to have this conversation because we're talking about all things wealth, really. And uh, I know you have your own podcast. You have a very successful business in the world of wealth management, but it's way more than just all of that. So why don't we start uh, by sharing with the audience who you are, a little bit of what you do, kind of that uh, quick elevator pitch, if you will, when people say, Jonathan, what is it you do? And I know that's not an easy question, but we'll work through it all. 
in a nutshell, I tell folks that I'm a seminarian turned Buddhist academic turned financial advisor. I've actually been investing in public markets for 40 years. I bought my first stock when I was nine years old. I've been an investor in real estate for about 20 years. I've been an investor in private markets for 15 years. I've actually been helping other people do these things for about 25 years. Um, and about 10 years ago, I pivoted to financial education. And to put all of those different timelines, uh, those items on a timeline, we have to go way back to the beginning. When I was a kid, and I've gone pretty deep with my mom and dad on this process, on this conversation, mm -hmm. my dad lost his business when I was three years old, and we didn't have a steady income until I was 15 or 16. So my entire life growing up is marked by not having enough and being worried about having enough. Uh, it wasn't marked by you know the desire for great success. It wasn't. It was. It was marked by how can I have some of these other things that my friends have. So I was very deeply interested in money. I was very deeply interested in investing. And, and really, this was not going to happen to me. So I dedicated a lot of my life to figuring out how finance works in our lives. Uh, and, and then ultimately transitioned after uh, dropping out of a Buddhist studies program uh, to doing it professionally realizing that this is a very difficult space for many, many, many people. Mm -hmm. And so having a, having a non-biased, uh, independent, objective, somebody that knows this stuff to talk through the questions and answers that people need uh, was something I wanted to do. And I've done it for about 25 years now. And I just, I, I love working with people on these issues. Give me a little bit, you know, it's interesting what you said, you know, you, so you were, you know, at a young age, you were, your family was struggling financially. Uh, you recognized that you wanted what friends wanted. Where did you get an idea at such a young age to, uh, you know, buy a stock or figure out how to buy stocks? What was the catalyst behind that? I'm, I'm assuming, and that would probably not necessarily be a safe assumption, that your dad struggling with a job or, or with employment was maybe not equipped to take you down a conversation of stock market. So where did that come from? Was there some mentors early on, family, friends? Well, how did you get there? So actually, we didn't have any money. But my dad would take Forbes, Money Magazine, and all these kinds of things. Mm -hmm. And so we would get those things delivered to the door, and I would read them. Um, and my dad was always very business-centric, and he was always trying to start things and trying to do things. And so for him, it was, you know, I guess technically it was private equity. It was, it was, it was you know, putting your shoulder to the grindstone and, and doing the work to create something. And so about 10 of those years, he was running a business um, and I got to see how a PL works and I got to see how, you know, you, you took in the uh, raw materials, you turn that into something that your customers wanted, but he never was very successful at it. Mm. And, and we didn't really have portfolios uh, as a kid. My dad had a property um, that, you know, it was a three unit building in Rapid City, South Dakota, that was pretty much the most rundown building on the West side, uh, mm. you know, and I got to go to go, go with him to you know, pump out the basement when it was filled with water or, or tear down the chicken coop that was like a death trap. Or, you know, I got to do all this kind of stuff as I was growing up, but he introduced me to the concept. And then when I was probably eight or nine, we'd go down downtown Rapid City to run errands. I would duck into, I think it was a private ledger office. And they had, they had the value line notebooks, the value line research notebooks sitting on that, uh, on the bookshelf. And I would just pull it out and start looking at you know, this is what this company is. This is what they manufacture. This is who the CEO is. This is all their metrics. And I would start reading this stuff. And that led me to the first stock purchase when I was nine. Uh, and I just kind of went, hey, this is interesting. Of course, that was the savings and loan company. I bought First Bank System. They 
failed <laughs> along with most of the savings and loan industry in the, you know, in the early 80s. Well, I always I always find it fascinating personally. You know, we often, you know, I have often have these conversations. Is it nature or is it nurture? You know, is how does somebody get on the path that they get on? And when you look at you, you know, what you were going through and what you went through and and you're you know, you gravitated to this kind of financial side of it. But is that nature or is it nurture? It's just an interesting concept that I sometimes ponder when I look at what people do and uh, where they go, what direction they take in their in their careers and in their futures. So you went on this path and tell me about when you came, did you go to university? How was school for you in terms of your development? And did you just continue on this? Like you really embraced this whole thought process? What was, uh, what was that in the early years? How did you you know, how did you stay on this path? Yeah, I mean, through, through high school and into my first year of college, finance was all I was interested in. And then when I got to college and did that first year in the finance group, finance department, I was doing business finance and I was bored out of my mind. Like I did, I did the three and 400 level courses as a freshman. And so I went, I went to my advisor and said, okay, I'm going to since I've done the three and four level courses, I want to study something else and sort of backfill. And they said, no, 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 you got to go do the ones and twos now. And I'm like, that's stupid. Um, why would I, why would I go take the thing that I had to test out of to get to this thing that I took? Um, so I ended up studying philosophy and, mm -hmm. uh, in my philosophy courses, I met just fantastic thinkers. I met a whole new set of thought processes mm -hmm. uh, and, and shifted in some literature and shifted in some psychology and, and added in some religious studies and some comparative religion. And some of my professors said, you know, obviously you like this. Obviously you have a lot of fun, you know, reading Descartes and reading philosophers and, and, and reading about the philosophy of religion. And uh, you should go to grad school and study this. I was like, okay, that's interesting. I'll do that. So uh, I went to uh, my main professor, Jim Allard, a uh, wonderful guy, and um, Martin Shaw, Marvin Shaw, uh, second wonderful guy, who were my two lead professors in undergrad, wrote great recommendations, and I ended up coming to the Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley. Uh, and so I studied, I came out to be a seminarian to, to study comparative religion from the side of Lutheran, Christian Lutheran theology. Uh, and, and, you know, become a minister. I, I did Easter sermons when I was growing up. I, I, I very steeped in the church, in the Lutheran church, but had kind of a falling out very quickly with the Lutheran school here, not because I did anything or they did anything. They didn't have the scholarship they promised me. Mm. And so in order to go to school, I had to find a different place to help me fund the school. And the Buddhist school said, yeah, we've got some extra funds this year. We'll give you your scholarship. So I ended up studying comparative religion from the Buddhist side instead of from the Lutheran side. Uh, and I just fell in love with it, honestly. Uh, so went deep in Tibetan Buddhism and spent three years really studying, you know, meditation practice, the history of Buddhism, the transmission of Buddhism across cultures, mm -hmm. um, and wanted to go to a PhD in this. And then my wife said, hey, you've been going to school a long time. It's my turn to go to school. So I dropped out got a job. Uh, and there's no, <laughs> as strange as this sounds, there, there is no job for a dropout in a Buddhist studies program. That, that <laughs> Are you kidding? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I just, you know, I, I went to Dean Witter. They hired me as a broker. So my first five years in the industry were on the brokerage side. I worked for Wall Street firms. Mm -hmm. 
So, you know, coming from the background that you came into an industry that can be quite competitive, quite cutthroat, is kind of known for, you know, the, the certain sales tactics, you know, questionable integrity sometimes. And I, and I don't and I say that with no judgment of it. That's just the overall sense of what I get and feedback I often get. Did you get those lines crossed sometimes or how was that for you in, in the first few years of being in that particular industry, given your background? <laughs> I say judge away. That's what I say. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it was, it was very sketchy. Mm. Uh, when so the competitive nature of the hiring process is interesting in and of itself. Um, first thing, this is 1996. Mm -hmm. So they, would literally hire anybody yeah. that could sell a stock to somebody else on the phone. And so the, the the interview process was very simple. It's like, it was, you know, here's a mirror. Can you fog it? Can you lift up a phone receiver sure. and dial out, yeah. right? That's all it really took. Yeah. Within the first year, you had to actually close a certain amount of, you know, business. You had to open a certain number of accounts. You had to have a certain number of assets. And I met all those thresholds. Mm -hmm. I, had a t I had a class of about 450 people. Mm -hmm. I was one of, I think after the second year, I was one of four in that class that remained, that mm. stayed at Dean Witter and were still in the business. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, it is very, just like you say, it's very cutthroat. Mm -hmm. However, in the office, there were those people you could follow and be mentored by who were just, just like you, just like you see in the movies, you know, the Wolf of Ross. Sure. That's just who they were. Like yeah. those people were in my office in San Francisco. Yeah. No question. One of their, one of them's name was Phil mm -hmm. and he would come in and if he made $2,000 by 9am, he would leave that day. Like yeah. he just made enough trades to make enough money yeah. to quit. Like yeah. all he wanted in the same office, a guy named John Dickens, he had built like an early version of a financial planning software in an Excel spreadsheet. And so he would be a, ment a mentor to me and I would learn how we could help people make better decisions by looking at how the decisions they make today would affect them into the future and actually map some of this stuff out and model it. There wasn't really good software in 1996 for this. Mm -hmm. um, it was stock analysis software. There wasn't a lot of planning software. So I had mentors on both sides and the mentors, the fills of the world actually made me want to quit. And I almost quit four or five times. Mm -hmm. And ultimately I did quit. And then when I quit, I started my own financial planning firm. Mm -hmm. And that's the solution for me was to get out of Wall Street and just have a, a goal-focused and planning-oriented firm that just worked with clients and helping them make better decisions. Uh, and you know, over time, that shifted into overcoming biases, um, you know, help, help them you know, model the lives they want and then pursue the things they really want that are really important to them. I guess the fundamental difference is for you, the shift for you in that particular move that when you went into your own was that you're coming from a place of bringing value of an integrity based kind of plan that you're putting together as in not self-serving, although you would financially gain from it, but ultimately client facing what's in it for them. How do we make, and how do we help them win? And that's, you know, that was a fundamental shift from, let's say the fills of the world who's going, okay, I got to make my couple grand and then I'm out, I'm, I'm gone for the day. That's a totally different approach to it. And then, so what, what about, where were you in your kind of journey uh, when you started your business, Jonathan? When I started the business, I was five years into the industry. I This was in 2001. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, 90, 96 to 2001. So I was yeah. five years in the industry. I had been at seven 
different firms in that five years. Uh, four, three of them were mergers. Mm-hmm. So I was at I was at Dean Witter when Morgan Stanley and Dean Witter merged. I moved to Payne Weber. Payne Weber and UBS merged. This must be 97, 98. I moved to Smith Barney. I was there for three months. I hated Smith Barney. And you'll notice that name is completely gone now. Mm. And then I moved to Prudential and then Prudential and Wachovia merged. And then 2008, and then now, now Prudential and Wachovia are both gone. Uh, but it's, but it's, it's, you know, I started the own company. I took five of my clients. I had probably 500 customers. I took five of those clients in 2001 and I just asked them, these are the good, these are the good people, the people that I felt like I really connected with. Mm-hmm. I really wanted to work with in a deeper level. And I said, I'm going to start my own firm. What do you want? What do you think is valuable? And they, all five of them said some version of, you know what, I'd like to know that it's not a product that is the core here. And I would like to know um, that planning is important. And I'd just like to kind of get some education. I'd like to know kind of what are, what are these things that uh, all the research people talk about? Why is it that always it's the broker-driven conversation that whatever the product of the day is? And how do I know to tell if it's advice or if it's sales? And so when I started, it was really the question of fiduciary mm-hmm. or not fiduciary. And that's the I think that's where the, the 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 pivot point is for me was just pure fiduciary is find that way to provide something that's good for people that I can live with that I really want to do because I, I feel like I'm good at this I have a I, I I have an aptitude for talking to people through the emotional dynamics of money uh, and I want to I want to have a good effect so mm-hmm. this is an opportunity for me to mix those those two elements of the Venn diagram uh, to have a better life myself and help people have better lives. So before we get into the topic of, you know, really the, you know, the emotionality of money and what causes and what the kind of psychology might be behind that, because I know you've got some great insights into that. When you started your firm, was was there a, an underlying or an overarching, I guess would be a better phrase, mission or philosophy, a stand that you would could define in terms of how you approached it, given your background and given what you wanted to achieve? So in 2001, I hadn't really brought together the mindfulness into it yet, but I, I, I love the, I love the question though. And the reason I love the question is there, there is a market focused mindset, you know, performance driven market focused mindset that's out there in the world. Mm -hmm. And I think that the, um, uh, the thing that I wanted to create was more goal focused and planning driven Mm -hmm. than market focused and performance driven. And the reason for that isn't because I wanted to be soft or isn't because I think that there's levers we can pull mm-hmm. that actually help people. Mm-hmm. And I don't think being market focused or looking at the last six months or three years performance are levers we can pull to actually help people. I think planning proper kinds of goal setting, like really figuring out what's really important mm-hmm. and then prioritizing those things actually helps people get what they want, helps them feel more secure that their future will have more of what they want. It's this, you know, you turn on your social media feeds and you see 
15 people that are friends of yours that are doing really cool stuff that you'd like, you really like to do. And, and, and just, you know, my wife says this, you know, so-and-so went traveling, they went to the, they went to Turkey, they've gone here, they've gone here. Can we do this? I'm like, yeah, we, we can, but remember we set these preferences. We set these priorities to make sure that the kids got to a good college, that we could help them pay for that college. We set a priority so that we would be able to save enough and we'd have a retirement income. Mm. We have priorities and we've established those priorities. And so we can do other things but then we have to understand the trade-off. Mm -hmm. And so making the planning trade-offs is actually the most important thing you can do in getting to the things you really want. And so keeping those things front and center is so, so, so important. So for us, we said, okay, goal-focused, planning-driven. And it wasn't until you know, conversations in 2007, 2008, in the middle of the Great Recession, that I was like, you know what I really need in this is mindfulness. Mm -hmm. It really should be mindful money because how do you work through the anxiety and the biases and the craziness around money when the world is, when we're being told the world is falling apart, mm -hmm. by the way, the world's not falling apart. The world never falls apart in the way that the media tells us it's falling apart. Oh boy, it's not the truth. <laughs> right. But how do we manage that? Mm -hmm. Well, that's where mindfulness comes in. Mm -hmm. Like, how do you remain semi-stoic in the mm. face of either just great excitement, think 1999, or horrific fear and depression, think, think early 2020 even, mm -hmm. but especially 2007, 2008. Yeah. And it's, it's that mindfulness that gives us that space to make better decisions. And that's what we try to inculcate. So when you talk about mindfulness, okay, so let's, let's kind of drill down on the thought process around mindfulness, not only to be mindful and what that might mean, but really I'm thinking more about how are you having these conversations with your clients, given this particular business model that you have, you know, are you teaching, you know, stoic methodology? Are you teaching meditation? Are you, you know, how, are you having conversations with clients about those kind? you know, talk about Marcus Aurelius, you know, where, and I'm joking a little bit, but I, I do, I am very serious in terms of how do you actually have an approach with people so that they connect to the conversation around being mindful around money and planning and, and looking into the future? So I think there's, there's three good elements to this. Um, the, the first thing is not everyone cares. Not everyone wants to be mindful. Not everyone even wants to answer the question of what is mindfulness. You know, not everyone wants to talk about it in those, in those regards. So, mm -hmm. so we have a pretty strict onboarding process okay. where we get to know people mm -hmm. and we ask them questions. And, and if they're really looking for something that's more market oriented and performance driven, we're very clear. That's not us. Like, we'll please, you know, there's other advisors that will do that. In fact, I would say 90% of other advisors, that's what they do. Sure. So go work with them. I can introduce you to a few, like they're good people. Mm -hmm. I trust them. Mm -hmm. Go there. You know, that's fine. Then we just show up as who we are. Um, and as an example, we do a ton of client communication and I don't mention mindfulness in our client communications all the time, but we do a quarterly, you know, newsletter that goes into client statements. And when, whenever we do that, we talk about our fundamental principles and our fundamental principles are the ones that are goal focused and planning driven and being goal focused and planning driven suggests a certain method of investing. And so we talk about that method of investing and we talk about how one of the implications of that method of investing is when the whole world is going crazy, either up.com or down Great Recession, we're going to sit on our hands. You know, we already own all the stuff. 
we don't have to trade and buy it now. In fact, now is too late. It already happened, right? Mm -hmm. So we're constantly messaging to this. To the specific of mindfulness, though, actually when 2020, when March of 2020 happened and, and in Berkeley, we, we locked down pretty hard, pretty quickly, we hosted, and this is probably summer of 2020, so July maybe, we hosted a five or six session uh, with uh, with a mindfulness coach, a mindfulness trainer, and she taught us, you know, how to note when our emotions are getting the best of us. She taught us how to eliminate the immediate response, how to how to actually consider options. You know, the, I don't know if you know the the, the rain, recognize, allow, investigate, non-identification. Realize that this is anger or this is fear, mm -hmm. but then don't identify with it. Separate from it a little bit. And then Yeah, but let's not step over that. You know, identify it, but don't identify with it. I mean, that's a that's a very distinct thought that you would have to to realize that. So and I think that's brilliant, by the way. I just I didn't want to step over that because it's a very, very good point. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, rain is, I didn't invent rain. Rain yeah. is a very well defined mm -hmm. meditation practice. Mm -hmm. um, and this, the whole idea of identifying the issue, you know, investigating, you know, allowing, and then not, not becoming one with it, realizing, oh, this is fear. You know, this is, this fear is going to cause this reaction. Now, is that reaction the best reaction or might there be a better reaction or might it be better to not react at all and look back at my plan and figure out what my plan said I should be doing at this point? Mm. And that's that sort of brings the the mindfulness into the life of financial planning. But by, by the way, it, it it works in relationships, it works in raising kids, it works in so many things. Mm. It's just the canvas I painted on is money. But mm. mindfulness is a very powerful tool. So let's talk a little bit about, you know, because we go down these paths, there's lots of directions we can go here, Jonathan, but let's talk a little bit more about the emotionality of money and, uh, you know, some of the conversations that can have around that. You know, we can actually, I want to touch it a little bit on what, you know, you look, go back to 2008. I mean, there was a lot of stuff happening in the world, particularly in the real estate world, uh, particularly in the U.S., more so than Canada was affected uh, U.S. was affected more than Canada, not that Canada went unscathed, because it certainly did not. And then we look at what's happening in the world of COVID, what it did to the economy, how things actually don't make sense. There is totally a disconnect from what's happening in the stock market, as an example, and uh, what's happening uh, in the real estate market, and and what's going on economically, really, when you kind of peel back the, the onion, if you will, and lots of it doesn't make sense. Uh, then we have, of course, the controversies around uh, vaccinations and the controversies around vaccination passes. And, it, you know, it, it's so there's so many mess, mixed messages out there. There's lots of confusion, lots of uncertainty. And uh, I want to talk about a little bit about all of those things, because in it all is people living with a, a, a huge amount of anxiety not only just financially, but relationally and mentally and spiritually. I mean, it's a significant breakdown that I'm seeing. I, I can't even tell you the couples that I personally know that are actually really struggling as couples because they don't align with what's going on in the world, whether that be economically, whether that be financially or what's going on, vaccination, no vaccination. It's really I mean, it's just unbelievable to actually be witnessing it. It's a frightening time and it's a confusing time, but I have to look at it and I go, this is such a fascinating time to be living through. 
when you just trying to when when you can step back and observe rather than react. And so that's a lot. I know that. But uh, these are some of the conversations I I'd really like to touch on, uh, Jonathan, given your area of expertise and how you approach things. So you're right. That is a lot. Uh, I, I'm not sure we can solve any of it. No, we can't the, solve any of it, can we? But philosophically, yeah. we could maybe dig into it a little bit, give some, you know, consider uh, some tools that people could use if they're going through any and or all of that at some at some level. There is a bias that's very well known. Tons of research done on it, and it's called recency bias. It's the it's the idea that what has just happened is this is this big thing that affects all of our thinking, and. Something that's interesting about recency bias is if you just erased the last two or three years and you look back to two or three years ago, I think what you'd see is there's all kinds of reasons for pain and fear and concern and anxiety. Then if you erased those three years and looked back three more years, you would see that there's been, there was a ton of stuff, about painful and anxious, all kinds of reasons to be upset. I've been doing this for 25 years. There, there isn't a time that I can remember when... It didn't feel like the world was kind of coming apart at the seams. There's, there's, there's time in the late dot com when everyone was doing so well, and you know, actually, the U.S. government was running a was running not a deficit; it was running a surplus. Like that was that happened for a few years, right? Uh, a long time ago. But there's so many things that, looking back, we have just forgotten about, right? So. One of our challenges is we live in the soup of today. Tomorrow, the issues of today will be replaced by new issues. Mm. And that will always happen. The thing that we have to try to learn about and educate ourselves about and, and, and read about is all these things that are going really, really well. There are three books that I, that I, I go back to. Um, one's called Abundance. One is called Progress. One is called The Rational Optimist. Mm. Now, you can have issues with the writers of all three of the books. I'm not making a statement about how great they are. Um, you know, one of them is a little bit more to the right, and one of them is a little bit more to the left. I don't know the politics, the other one. The thing that they write about is, you know, where were we 100 years ago? Now, would you rather be the wealthiest person 100 years ago or 500 years ago, or would you rather be who you are today? And we just forget how good we have it. Mm. From an investment perspective, I... I love this because from an investment perspective, I don't much care. And the thing I talk about all the time is if you're goal-oriented and planning-driven, you're not trying to predict what happens in markets. You don't care what happens. That is part of the noise. You can ignore that. The thing that you have to rely on, and I think if you really think about this, this is completely reliable is the number of people around the globe that are in the middle class is increasing and has been for many, many years. It ebbs and flows. It takes two steps forward, one step back. So, But over time, it increases. Those people are living longer. The needs and wants of those people are multiplying, not, not adding, they're multiplying. The faster this thing goes, the faster it goes. Like there's an exponential increase in what we do. That is the investable thesis. Mm -hmm. It's not that Apple's going to be better than Microsoft or that Tesla is going to take Ford out. That I could, I could care less about those conversations. I own Microsoft. I own Apple. I own Intel. I own it all. Mm -hmm. I own it all. Right? Don't don't try to be too hyper selective. And by being non hyper selective, 
you can ignore the noise because you own the stuff that's going to be successful. And you know that you, your kids, your uncles and aunts, your neighbors, their uncles and aunts all want better things for their families in the future. They all have wants and needs. Those wants and needs are ever changing. We're all living longer and there's more of us. And if you admit that, then just own it all. You can just, mm. you can just ignore the zigs and zags that happen on a regular basis. The problem is you have to, you have to boost your faith. You have to uh, boost your patience and you have to maintain discipline. Mm. That's why we say goal focused and planning driven. Cause it, if you see your goals and you remind yourself of your goals, then you know what you're trying to work for. It's easier to reach your goals. If that's always front and center. It's well, easier to have discipline, patience. Yeah. Well, this goes back to, I guess, the whole conversation around mindful money, which is really paying attention to that emotional side of it. But let's dig into a little bit of the, you know, what's going on economically, Jonathan, because when we consider uh, what's happening in the stock market these days, I mean, you go back uh, 2019, you know, we've been in a very long bull run, even right up till the end of uh, 2019, early 2020. Of course, COVID hits, we tank. Then it bounces off whatever bottom it bounces off of. And then it's just been nothing but up. Nobody had any idea that the feds would just start producing money and feeding this whole, um, you know, feeding these companies and these asset classes. And like, do you see an end to this? Let's talk a little bit about the, you know, some of the possibilities, because you talk about fear driven and uh, I mean, you don't have to be all of all that knowledgeable to look at it and go, we continue to print capital. We can, you know, the feds continue to, uh, you know, buy bonds, drive the market hard. When does it, when does it end or does it end? Or do you see an end? You know, what, what's your thoughts on what's going on in that regard? So I don't know. Like that's, I never know. Yep. No one else knows either. Nope. That fundamental investing thesis is that more people want more things over more time. And so markets will zig and zag. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it'll be because, you know, the Fed raises rates mm -hmm. at some point mm -hmm. and markets were, you know, the, remember the temper, the taper tantrum that occurred a few years ago, coming yeah. out of 2008, 2009, 2012, maybe it's 2013 is when it happened. We're actually seeing one of those right now. The conversation is happening in the market that, okay, what if, what if they start to taper their bond purchases? Well, if they start to taper their bond purchases, we're already seeing the equity markets kind of readjust for that. The question is, would you liquidate equities or real estate because that happened? Mm -hmm. And I would say, that's crazy. You have no idea. And, and there isn't a... a the history doesn't side with, the, the actual data doesn't side with people that get in and get out and get in and get out. Mm -hmm. it, doesn't, it doesn't work to predict because we could print for 10 more years. Mm -hmm. We could stop at two years. Mm -hmm. I have no idea. I won't know until after they announce it. After they announce it, it'll be too late. And it won't matter because in a couple of years, 18 months later, whatever thing had changed in the market because of that will be over. And markets will have continued their long string of higher highs and higher lows that exists in stocks. It exists in real estate. It exists in international stocks, international real estate. These things go up in value over time. Maybe it's because of inflation sometimes, right? Sometimes we're afraid of inflation, but it could be a positive. Like businesses adjust their, their 
P&Ls. They, they adjust where they source materials. They adjust where they put those materials together into something that's useful. They adjust their pricing so they can remain profitable. That's what businesses do. They mm-hmm. deal with inflation. They deal with resource scarcity. They, that's what they do. That's the whole point. Um, the, the driver, though, is the consumption on the other end. And people say, oh, consumption's bad. Some people say consumption's bad. Depends on what we're consuming, right? And our and our consumptive choices are always changing. Um, and that's actually a huge positive for businesses that are active in the space, uh, in any space, right? Whether it's solar panels or carpet with less waste, or whether it's the kinds of clothes we, we purchase and wear, or whether it's eyeglasses. It, it, we're getting better at manufacturing those things with, with um, recycled resources. We are getting cleaner uses of, uh, of all manufacturing pieces and energy. And, and these are all positives. It doesn't have to be a huge cost. It is very difficult, though, when you open, the, you know, open your news browser or read the paper and see this is what's happening. And the next day, you see another headline. The next day, you see another headline. That's all about the Fed and what the Fed's doing with rates or they're tapering their bond purchases. And that makes you think that, hey, this is really important. I should pay attention to this. I say just the opposite. It is important, but it's not important for the reasons you think. Um, the more money they print, the more profitable companies are going to be. When we look at what's going on economically and, you know, of course, mainstream media, I, I spend very little time, if any, on mainstream media because it, it, none of it is real anyways. You know, they're talking heads, they're reading whatever script they're given that day. It's not investigative journalism. And, and that's just how I see mainstream media. There's nothing new there. They drive a lot of fear, a lot of confusion. And whatever the agenda is of that day, that's their job to drive it. Now, that's not even a criticism of the talking heads because, that's what they do for a living, but there's not a real background of what's real, what's not real, what's positioning, what's not positioning. And whether it's U.S. or Canada, uh, I mean, U.S. is bigger, so it may, you know, so I guess obviously there's more of it than in Canada only because of sheer size, but it's all the same in my world. So, but when I go back to the critical thinking part of it, you know, given what you do in terms of wealth manage, management, I get, you know, mindful money, and then I look at critical thinking and I say, when I look at what's going on economically in Canada or the U.S., given what's happening with COVID, given the printing of money, given the devaluing, I mean, you can't help but devalue dollars when you're printing as much, we'll use the term printing, as much money as globally as all governments are doing, every country is doing. Uh, We're talking about Canada and the U.S. in this case. Do you see, or when you look at how you process, given your thought process, do you look at it and say, yeah, I see a potential collapse of fiat currency. Yes, I see where, uh, you know, gold, silver, Bitcoin might be a good hedge against that kind of thing. Uh, Yes, I see some, uh, you know, some real political uh, challenges given, you know, in the U.S., you've got all these states, they all have a different view of the world. Like, do you break it down in that way? Or do you just go, you know something, I'm just going to sit back, ride this out because the equity market's going to continue to increase because right now the feds can't afford for it to collapse. So they're just going to keep feeding it and get into whatever next uh, tranche of millions it is, whether, you know, another three, another 10, whatever the number might be. So when I look at critical thinking and I look at the breakdown logistics chain over the next couple of years, for sure, what's happening in China, uh, you know, with really product not being able to even get out of the ports in China, a lot of product, uh, productivity out of 
the U.S. or productivity even out of Canada because of some of the logistics chain. Does does that come into a conversation with you? And I and I'm I'm really wondering how you process uh, because I see uh, I see it a lot because uh, you know the real estate investment network, of course, a lot of what we do is research, especially given what's going on in the housing market in Canada, and so we can't help but look at all of those aspects. So I'm wondering. How do you view it, Jonathan? Because you come, you know, you sound very optimistic regardless of what's happening. I think that's awesome, by the way. But I would also like to gain how you get your perspective. Yeah, I mean, it's it's there, there's there's an enormous amount of uh, academic research on where we can make a difference, specifically in portfolios. So mm-hmm. I, I think about all these things all the time, mm-hmm. uh, and some of them keep me up at night some nights. Uh, but when you try to use those things for portfolio design, mm-hmm. the academics tell you it doesn't work. So you cannot make a reliable, consistent, short-term market call. You cannot. I agree. Um, yeah, I agree with all, that. All, all the people that try, and it's, it's the, way, the way we talk about it is you put, you put all today's decisions on a um, bell curve. You know, some of them, you look back, five years from now, some of them will be far on the right side of the bell curve. Some of them will be far on the left side of the bell curve. Most of them will be in the middle. That's just how it works. That's mm-hmm. how all of these things work. There's a relatively normal distribution when you have the more the more choices being made, the more normal the distribution becomes. So you have thousands and thousands of, of uh, choices being made in the investment world. You'll have some that are very lucky, some that are very unlucky. When you look back through history and you look at the calls people make, and you see where they fall in the distribution, there's a couple things that come to mind. The first thing that comes to mind is those people who are at the top of the distribution one year are nowhere near the top of the distribution the next year. So it isn't something that anyone has been able to consistently do outside of normal odds, okay? So what does that mean? There is a probability that one manager somewhere for the next 20 years will outperform everything There is a probability, it's not zero. There is a probability that some manager somewhere will get so lucky that for the next 20 years, every year they will destroy all the markets. Okay, fine, that probability exists. Which one is it? Mm -hmm. How do you choose? You can't. (laughs) There there is no way to pick which manager that will be. Mm -hmm. Same way there is no way to pick which currency, which cryptocurrency, which real estate market, which stock market. And so then you have to ask the next question. Since you can't, you can't really identify levers you can pull for short-term performance, are there levers you can pull for long-term performance? Turns out, yes, there are. Turns out the academics have come to three or four levers that work consistently over time, that the longer time you give them, the higher the probability they work. Do they work every year? No. Some years they're not so good. In fact, we've gone through a few years where they're not so good recently. Um, but over time, the more you stick to these, the better off your long-term targets become, the higher the probability you reach your goals. So what are those three or four things? It's very simple. One, and this, when you say them, you're like, oh, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, one, value. Like spending, you know, buying units of book or units of sales or units of earnings for the lowest possible price per unit, okay? So you pay a higher price for sales or a higher price for earnings, that's 
you have less upside by definition, right? If, if, so that's value. Second thing is size. Think about, you know, if, if you buy a small company that has one product in one market, it has lots of potential product development and lots of potential market entrance that it can take. So it can grow in lots of different ways, right? If you buy McDonald's, well, they can't grow quite as fast as, say, in an Outburger, right? Because they are already everywhere. They already offer all the products they can offer. Um, they can cut co cut costs by reducing labor, whatever. But that's really where you get a benefit out of McDonald's. You want to you want to hire a shit. You want to buy a Shake Shack or a or a, or an In and Out Burger kind of a situation. Then you have lots of upside from different places. So size in this case matters. And the, the last thing is profitability. Mm -hmm. Like if you have a company whose history tends to enrich the people who own the company, you know, tends to favor owners, it tends to continue to do that. In other words, there are, there are great finance, uh, finance firms who the partners of the firm take home all the profit. They, they pay 40, 50% of the returns to the executive suite. That's not necessarily owner-centric. So that might not be a good one. And that's just one example among many. Profitable companies tend to remain profitable because that's what they look at as, as their goal. So do you just apply one of these? Do you say, okay, I'm going to just buy the most profitable companies? No, because that shifts from year to year. Uh, so what the academics have done is they say, you take the whole market. You know, say there's 5,000 companies in the U.S., say there's five, maybe 8,000 companies in the developed world outside the U.S., and say there's 5,000 more companies in the emerging world, right? That's 18,000 companies. You take the whole stack of companies and you tilt towards, so you own them all, you tilt towards, maybe you have a social screen, maybe you have a screen for something else that's important to you, but you own them all and you tilt towards value, profitability, and smaller cap. And by doing that, you have a, you improve your probabilities of long-term positive outcomes relative to your index and your peers. So there is academic research in this area. Mm -hmm. It isn't shared with the public very much. It's all available, but no one's pitching it. And if no one's pitching it, like they're pitching short-term market outlooks and short-term market performance, people don't see it. But if you look for it, you can find it. Tons of academic research on this. Mm -hmm. It says short-term decisions, inconsistent at best, unpredictable at best. Long-term, there are things you can do to improve the probability of your outcome. So we focus on those things. And that's, that's I think, when you apply the science to finance, that's how you can add value. Yeah, and I think the you know those short-term moves are reactive as opposed to your point, which is being mindful, being proactive, but planning through it. Those reactive, uh, those reactive moves that people make, and I've certainly made them in my day, are uh, quite costly generally, and uh, they rarely work out. When they do, sometimes it's awesome, but uh, they they do rarely work out. When you talk about wealth and, you know, there's, a, you know, maybe this is not a question I generally ask when we talk about success and we relate it to money, but let's talk about wealth and what it means to your clients or what does it mean to you? So if somebody's saying, uh, I just want to be wealthy, well, we'll just use that kind of vague kind of thing. It's like, I want to be rich. Well, what does that even mean? But in the, in the term of wealth, uh, how does how do you hold space for that for your clients? What's some of the thoughts and conversations that you're having in behind? Because people are, of course, and and 
you know, they're, they're charged about money. There's anxiety about money. There's belief systems around money. So let's dig into a little bit about the psychology of it, or if we use that term, about money and wealth and why people have the anxiety they have, the fears that they have. And let's see where we go with this one. So just a couple quick things that we can, we can just go, go down either path really quickly. Yeah. Why the anxiety exists is the first thing. And then the second thing is, you know, how do we define wealth? And mm -hmm. I, and I love both these questions. So the first one, why do we have so much anxiety and stress about money? I, I think that, you know, we teach reading and writing and we teach arithmetic and we teach some science and we teach some history. We teach, we don't really teach anything practical about money. So it shouldn't be a surprise that when a 19 year old kid gets offered a loan for a car or for college education, that 19 year old kid has no idea how to decide whether or not this is a good investment in their future, right? We have done a horrible job preparing people for making financial choices. When that 24 year old gets their first job outside of college and they, they get their onboarding packet from their employer and the onboarding packet says, here's, here's life insurance options, here's your health insurance options, here's your 401k options. By the way, there's this other tool you can use that's a 457 that lets you save even more. Um, and they don't go to the onboarding meeting because they're busy with their friends, they're 24 years old, they're not thinking about that, that's not important to them. Mm -hmm. And they don't revisit that for five years or 10 years for, or as long as they're at an employer. There isn't a default today, more so than 10 years ago. If you have an employer that has a 401k, you're just automatically signed up for it at a low contribution level, maybe 3%. But if, if you don't know that the best investments you will ever make are the ones that you make when you're 24 and just sit there and leave alone for the next 50 years, you're not going to do it. And we have not prepared them for this. So the anxiety is earned. Like we as a culture deserve a lot of anxiety about money because we are not preparing people to deal with money very well. Um, and so that's that's a huge part of, of what I'm trying to do with my own life is how do I create systems and processes and courses and classes and online things so so people get some education on this stuff because it's it's huge and it's a problem. The second part of the anxiety is just as you said, like money infects everything. It infects your relationship. It infects, you know, where you shop. It infects the clothes you wear. It's it's in the middle of every decision, and every decision that you make for spending, which is really easy to decide to spend money on a on travel or shoes or a car or whatever. Every one of those decisions has an effect on your long term income. I meet people who say, "I'm not going to retire," right? And I say, "Well, no." You, in my head, I'm not saying this to them at that point. Uh, I say, you'll probably retire someday. Maybe you'll last till you're 67, but I don't know. I have 25 years and two or three clients who are 70 and, and they're working because they want to keep working and they love it. Mm -hmm. You know, most people at some point, they get a little older, they get a little more tired, their kids grow up, they want to spend more time with their grandkids, they want to travel more. The desire to work and be productive is replaced by other desires. Um, and maybe you don't know that when you're 25 or 30, but eventually, it gets to that. It becomes that. And if if you don't know going in that you have to save, you're not going to. And so we need to provide that education and we need to help people do that. Well, and, and what's your thoughts? You know, because there's these conversations often, ha you know, come around and we say, well, you know, ultimately, as the parents of our children, 
we're not having these conversations at home, but that's because, you know, we didn't have them as kids growing up or people in general. Uh, you know, I've had extensive conversations with my daughter, for example, you know, she's now grown up and I'm a grandfather and all the things that go with that. But ultimately, we had huge conversations around dollars and cents and managing money and budgets and money and investing and all of the things, but that's not the norm. And, and so I, we, and then people say, well, it should be taught in our schools, but there's such a diverse range of belief systems within the family system that I don't think we could even actually put that on our teachers. That's my own kind of view of the world. I mean, even culturally, uh, you know, the schools are so uh, diverse in their cultural makeup, and there's also a cultural belief system with money and how it goes and how it works. So I don't know that, you know, as much as we want to make it the school system, maybe there's a, you know, finance 101, but I don't think the teachers could win in this game. What's your thoughts on that, Jonathan? Yeah, I, I I don't ever want to say that it's it's on teachers. I think that there are, yeah. and we're seeing more and more of this. Like there's there are companies that specialize in providing some kind of an educational program um, for teachers to offer students, for school systems to offer within school systems, for parents to offer their kids. You know, in 2020, one of the things you know while we were locked down, one of the things that uh, my team and I did is we we created 18 financial literacy modules, um, and they cover you know, what's the difference between credit and debt? Mm -hmm. Very, very, very basic stuff. Sure. How do you how do you pick a bank to, ha to have a bank account at, right? Very basic stuff. And then we go all the way to philanthropy, but there's 18 things. And we're just, we're in our community for any group in the Berkeley, Oakland, San Francisco Bay area that has members or, or, or constituents in that group, churches, you know, educational groups, nonprofits, and they want to provide literacy, we're just giving it away. We're, we're, please let us know you need this. We'll give mm -hmm. it to you. We'll give you a code. You can have access to it. Um, and, and we do that because this is, I think, one of the best ways we can actually have an effect in our community in a broad way. Because even if we taught it in schools, and this is where the real challenge is, even if we were to teach it in schools and it were a requirement of all schools across the country, there's a huge knowing doing gap. Like I know, I, I use this example often, I know that I probably shouldn't have a big bowl of ice cream with a cookie every night. I know I shouldn't, but every night, if there's a big bowl, if there's ice cream in the freezer and there's cookies available, I'm going to have a bowl of ice cream and a cookie. I know I shouldn't do that every night, but if it's available, I'm going to do it. That's my weakness, right? I know that I should be saving money every month. And everyone knows this. This isn't, this isn't news. Like everybody knows we should save and not spend, but then there's a note, what do I save it? What do I put it in? There's so many little decisions to go with that. Education is not enough. That gives us the indication of what we should be doing. Then we have to have something that helps us do it. And this could be, this could be a, a, a deeper program of, you know, I know, I know that the Canadian system is different from the American system in terms of our saving structure, in terms of social security, in terms of those kinds of things. But there's a better way to do it that we're, than, than what we're than what I think we're doing in the U.S. Mm -hmm. Well, and in Canada as well. I don't think either, you know, either country does a great job along that line. But let's talk a little bit about some, you know, let's, I'd really like to give some people some takeaways, our listeners some takeaways and some tools and some thought processes, although we've done that. But I also want, you know, within the Real Estate Investment Network, of course, we educate investors. We talk a lot about uh, creating a financial future, security, certainty, and financial freedom 
and using real estate to achieve some of those goals. Now, of course, many of the members of our community, they also invest in stock market or they buy equities. They do all sorts of other things. But, you know, as we go through and look at real estate, we always you know, we use the reference of treat your real estate investing like a business and to look at the assets that you're accumulating, uh, look into the future, uh, you know, hedge on inflation, uh, grow that financial. Uh, we break it down as security, certainty and uh financial freedom as specific targets, because we know that when people have some sense of security where they've got one, two, three properties, they start to feel some security and then they can then move forward again and to create the next financial certainty. And so that's just a process. It's a philosophy that we have around it. But along the way, what's happening? We're building assets. It takes a number of years to do that. And life happens. And it's interesting in our space because we're seeing it often where people are not preparing in different ways financially, whether it be tax preparation on an exit strategy, but the other, you know, that's just one example, or where they're not paying attention to the deals, they're living off cash flow, or they're not running the business or treating it like a business. But one of the big things, and I want to know from you if that's your experience as well, is we're seeing time and time again, people who are not prepared, they haven't put together a will and they haven't sat down with their significant others or their lawyer or their accountant and actually put a plan together should somebody get hit by the proverbial bus, whether that be yourself or a joint venture partner or whatever that might be, and having actually a strong plan to understand the consequences of that and uh, really understanding what it means to those that are left behind on either side of it. So that's a conversation we have actually quite frequently uh, to try and get people to, because it's a big job. It's like doing yeah. a will is hard work, especially when you've accumulated some assets. But give me your perspective, given your background. In an effort to answer this question, I want to go back to the, a little bit of the last question, which is what's that? How do we define true wealth? Mm -hmm. And the reason it's important is in, the reason I think financial planning is so critical, so important is it starts with a question of what's important to you. So true wealth, I believe at the end of the day is the freedom to live your life the way you want to live your life. And I don't really care, you know, the details of that. I just want people to be able to live their lives and continue to do so in quasi-retirement, retirement, whatever, for the rest of their lives. So when you put that in there as true wealth, you know, free time to do what you want to do. You automatically have to include your family. You have to include, well, what happens if we don't have an income stream? What happens if, you know, our house in California um, burns in one of these fires? What happens if you, you have to take care of the details, which means if you don't know what those details are, you've got to start reading books and educate yourself about what those details are. Um, and it's almost an admission of guilt here. But my brother, who, who three months ago, he died in an accident and he wasn't, he's, he's 45. Mm, so yeah, he, had, he, he had 20 years before this was even something that was going to register on his, uh, you know, something he had to think about. Mm -hmm. And he should have had those 20 years. Um, he didn't. He didn't see it coming. His family didn't see it coming. You know, as a mindfulness oriented financial planner, I must have seen it coming, and I don't know if I was not forceful enough or whatever. I'm not trying to blame myself. I just, I just think 
I think he could have been better prepared and his family's not prepared. Uh, and it's, it's going to be a hard road for them. Um, the whole family is going to be affected. I'm going to be affected. I'm going to, you know, help, uh, my, my parents are going to help her parents are going to help. Um, but had they done that planning, maybe that, maybe they would have signed, you know, real estate in, in, in the United States, you have a loan for, for almost no money. You can actually insure the loan to be paid off if something happens to you. Okay, they didn't have that. They, you, you can have life insurance, you know, term life insurance for, for almost no money. I mean, it's so cheap that it's just a matter of time to put it in place. They had a little bit, you know, not a lot of analysis to determine how much was necessary. So they'll be, they'll be okay in that regard a little bit. But if, for example, both Judy and my brother had died, who would take care of the boys? Like, who would take care of my nephews? Like, that wasn't written down anywhere. Wow. And that becomes a yeah. huge problem, right? Big, big problem. So you got to do the planning so that you know what's important to you. So you at least have some kind of an executive summary of, I got to do this and this and this and this and this. That includes will and trust and powers of attorney. And it includes, you know, healthcare directives. It includes guardianship issues. It includes life insurance. It includes insurance on all your all your you know, property, health insurance. It includes, you know, insurance if something happens to you and you're disabled and you can't work. It includes all of this stuff and it has to because, and some of the Buddhist teachers say, you know, you have to take care of the plate, even though you know that the plate will break. You know, eventually the plate's going to break, but you still got to take care of it. You still got to take care of it. And that's, this is part of taking care of it. Mindfully being aware of the stuff that can go wrong enables you to plan for and enables the ability to enjoy all the stuff that goes right. And we hope for the stuff that goes right. We want the stuff to go right, but we're not guaranteed right. There's no promise that this is going to go the way you want it to go. And so that's, I can't, to, to all your listeners, I would say, yeah, do the planning work, figure out the details and get that part done. Cause you're just, you don't know. I didn't know. It's yeah. changed my life. And that doesn't mean go to the local bookstore store and spend 50 bucks or 100 bucks or whatever they are these days for a your own do-it-yourself will kit because those will often be the worst news that you'll ever your uh, the you, the whoever's left after you're gone that'll be the worst news that they get so uh, please sit down with your accountant your lawyer and get that guidance when we talk about all of this there's a term that you use you know I think was a financial illusions and this kind of speaks to a little bit about the lack of planning the uh, young individual younger person that says yeah I'll worry about that when I'm older uh, that all to me represents the illusion of what it's going to be and what, it, you know, what do you use the term or what is financial illusion in the context that you use it? What does that mean? So it, it's, a, it's a great question. The, the, in my book, uh, Mindful Money, the first section of the book is there's eight illusions. Um, and what I use it as, as these are the stories that were told that just aren't true. Um, and one of the, I mean, the biggest one, uh, there's two really big ones, but there's, I included eight, so obviously there's eight really big ones. But yeah. the one I, I talk about the most is the idea that volatility and risk are the same thing. We are all so afraid, and in the last couple of years, just you know, really highlights this fear. The the money that moved out of the stock market in March of 2020 when it tanked, that money didn't enjoy the recovery that started in April, the very next month, and ended in August. So, mm -hmm. if if you get sucked into, and afraid of and run away from the down, right? You will be affected in the long term because you're not participating in the up. 
So volatility is normal. The average annual decline in the you know the U.S. market, the S&P 500, is about 14, 15%. Average annual decline. So if you just if you think about that for a second, the Dow the, the Dow's at what 35,000, more than that probably, 35,000 ish. Mm-hmm. What is 15%? It's 5,000 points. Mm-hmm. That's an enormous drop. And guess what? If it happened, totally normal, just a normal year. So why why do we get all upset when it goes down five percent or ten percent? It's totally normal. Like it, it, right now in markets, because of the taper tantrum, the current taper tantrum, not the original circa 2012, um, the current conversation about inflation and rates going up and their tapering bond purchases, markets are probably off three percent. And every article I read is referencing, "Oh my God, is this the beginning of a big thing?" It's ridiculous to, to 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 think of it that way. Volatility is normal. Markets don't know what's coming next. It is the function of markets to price things as things get clearer. And as things get clearer, they are always priced upwards, always. Because we have a problem, we resolve the problem. We get excited, we resolve it downwards for a bit, and then we just continue apace. It's it's a very normal process. Um, volatility is nothing to be scared of. Human error in response to volatility, that's what should be what we should be careful of. That's where mindfulness comes in. So only because you yeah, and I, so I get all that you're saying. I don't I I agree with you. I was going to say I don't disagree, but I'll say I agree with you and and we see that of course over the long term. I mean, it's pretty verifiable and just pay attention to your point, a normal pullback 15%, let's say in a given year. But when you look over 10 years, when you look over 15 years, of course, you start to realize that, yeah, the trend is your friend and uh, hang in there and it continues to uh, go up in that particular pattern. Now, affects people differently because of timing, right? If somebody has just lost a job and things crashed in March, that would be very difficult to uh, to handle that kind of uh volatility, if you will. You know, you've got, you know, you've lost the job, you had money, all of a sudden that money, uh, you know, (laughs) drops significantly. Seeing yourself through that, I get mindful money, but I can see the actual anxiety and the reactiveness of anybody who pulled money out of the market, let's say in that particular example. But in your view of the world, Jonathan, as you kind of examine what's happening in the equity market, what's happening in the world overall, and you're guiding people to invest, what do you see in the future? You know, when we look into the future and then we've talked, we touched briefly on just talking, you know, we drop Bitcoin or uh, digital currencies or digital investments. If we'll use that term, gold, silver. Then we look at the commodity market, what's happening in, with commodities. Do you pay attention to that? We look at technology. Do you say, well, I want to move some money into technology. Gosh, I'm looking at what's going on in uranium, given the whole green thing and what's happening. What, you know, like, what do you see in the future when you break it down that way. I'm just curious uh, because there's so much conversation going on around that. Yeah, it, I mean, it, the conversation is is everywhere around that. It's uh, um, and it doesn't have to be just crypto or inflation fighting things. We've mm-hmm. had in the last six months, we've had you know meme stock stuff. We've had totally. um, Robin Hood. I mean, think about Robin Hood like that. I mean, that was like crazy and it continues to be nuts but anyways aside from that but i'm talking about uh, from a mindful money concept and philosophy do you look into these other kind of oh sure potential future things 
Sure, 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 sure. So I, I, um, you know, I, I've read two of the Bibles on on Bitcoin. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I understand how the mining works. I, I, I get it. I understand how Ethereum is the back of NFTs. I get, I get the technology. I've talked to people that are hedge fund managers that that's all they trade in. Mm-hmm. The fundamental belief that I have about crypto or anything like this is it's the same thing I felt about dot com. Like there were. There were hundreds and hundreds, thousands of companies sure. that went public in the dot-com where you'd say, I don't know what this is. Like, I, are they going to have earnings? I, I don't know. There's no way, there wasn't any way to prove mm-hmm. that this was going to be a successful investment. Mm-hmm. You thought maybe that Cisco would have been, but remember Cisco went to, I don't know, I guess on a split adjusted basis, went to something like 90 and it's still, it's still never recovered that. Mm-hmm. And they, they build the backbone of the internet. So mm-hmm. that's weird, right? Yeah. So something like Bitcoin, I think eventually blockchain technology becomes a very big deal. Mm-hmm. It, it it already is it becoming already is, a yeah. big deal. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, Bitcoin as a as a currency is an interesting speculation. Yeah, totally. I think you can trade it and make money. I don't. I won't. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't recommend people do it. But I know people that have traded it and made money. Yeah. Here's what I think. Here's how I approach those things. I'm pretty sure that J.P. Morgan or B of A, or Redfin, or you know, any company that has a lot of transactions, um, whether, whether that's real estate, whether that's some sort of you know, internet or, or PayPal, or I think they will actually employ the technology eventually. Um, and I have clients that work in trying to apply the blockchain as a tracking tool to replace um, who are the people in the U.S. that are actually transferring the asset, uh, the real estate assets? What's that? What's that role? Old Republic title, title companies. Mm-hmm. So people are actually trying to see, you know, figure out how to use the blockchain to replace title yep. companies, right? Yep. So this stuff is all going to come about. Mm-hmm. But if you invest in the companies, you have something you can analyze. You have a profit statement. Sure. You have something that you know you can put a value on. You can do a you can do a discounted cash flow on it, and you can you can say, okay, this is worth this, or it's not worth this. And I'd say for anything that doesn't have that ability, you're guessing. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm fine with anyone's guess. Like I've listened to people saying, you know, Bitcoin is the is the new gold, or Bitcoin is the new this. Sure. And I'm saying there's no way to prove that. You yeah. can't prove it. Yeah. And so. Is it something that maybe someone might want to put 1% of their net worth in or 2% of their net worth in? Maybe, but let's recognize that as a speculation. Mm-hmm. Investing is in stuff that has a cash flow tied to it, mm-hmm. has some kind of probability tied to it. Bitcoin doesn't right now. The way it gets employed by companies, absolutely, that'll affect companies' bottom lines. And I trust that the companies that I own that have an interest or will benefit from Bitcoin will employ it mm-hmm. or whatever the next thing is. Sure. And so that's, I approach the same thing and I'm, I'm willing to give up the thousand percent upside potential in Bitcoin for the regular nine, 10% upside of the equity markets. Yeah. Got I, it. I can predict that. Yeah. And I think there's, there's always somebody who's going to swing for the fence and, you know, there's lots of, even the big, but even the big guys that are playing, you know, that are investing Bitcoin, they're being very clear three to 5%. And I heard somebody says, I'm going to take it to seven, but they're talking three to 5%. And even in the traditional gold and silver world where they're saying, you know, own, uh, own have bullion, hard bullion, as opposed to EFTs of some sort, you know, their whole thing is, you know, 10%, 5%. They're not going They're They're also 
suggesting don't go all in on it. And I've just been watching it because of what's going on in the world. We've got you know digital currency, but we've also got central bank digital currency on the table. That's a big conversation. UBI is on the table. These are all conversations that are having on both sides of the border, both in Canada and the US. And it's really just looking into the future and saying, what does that mean from an investment uh, point of view? Uh, can we look into the future and then make some decisions? And that doesn't mean, to your point, doesn't mean going all in. 1%, 2%, 3% is a game that we play. You know, at the end of the day, for us, uh, I'm, we're big fans of real estate. Uh, I'm a big fan of real estate. I know that you own some real estate. But ultimately, we're looking at, in that case, at a hard asset that does make sense, that you can actually follow the plot and why it's going to continue to rise. In Canada, I don't want to speak to the U.S. because the U.S. is so big. Uh, each state has a kind of a different world going on. And uh, you have to pay attention to what's happening regionally, even more so. Canada as well, but uh, the U.S., like I say, it's so vast in its overall size and population that uh, you really have to look at regional markets. Yeah, for sure. And I, and I, I you know, I just go back to, I, I don't have any problem with anyone like swinging for the fences on something like yeah. that's, you know, I've got a, I've got a buddy who does biotech stocks. Good for him. Like, yeah. I'm not going to do that. Like, that's not what I do, but yeah. good for you. Do that. Right. Well, well, that would be a fair statement, I guess, uh, as well on this whole conversation, Jonathan, is that there's so many opportunities out there. There's so many that appear as, but yeah, but you can, you know, you can, you can have that Lamborghini tomorrow, just get on Robin hood and follow along. And, you know, the next thing you know, you're driving the car. I guess this goes back to what this whole conversation has been all about, which is really about mindful money and really spending time planning, surrounding yourself with, in your case, a wealth, would, would you call yourself a wealth manager? Sure. Yeah. So a wealth manager that aligns with your values. And that would be something, an interesting conversation, I guess. You talk about onboarding where some clients aren't going to align because you're very values focused, values driven, and their values and your values may not align, which doesn't mean they're right when you're wrong or vice versa. It just means we have different values. Therefore, the relationship isn't going to work as well as it would if we just shared common values. Is that a fair statement in all of that, Jonathan? It's, it's beautiful. I mean, I, so the issue is whoever you choose to be your advisor, at some point, you will not like or want their advice. Mm -hmm. If you have a fundamental values agreement, then you will be able to see their advice as something that is valuable and you'll understand where it's coming from. Mm -hmm. If, and you know, this is true for, this is true for our office. Like when large growth companies are killing it, we're not participating as much. We don't make as much money when that happens, mm -hmm. which is fine by me because I understand the probabilities. I understand the long term. When a client calls up and says, "Hey, Jonathan, you know, I noticed that you know Apple, Amazon, Microsoft, <laughs> Facebook are all Google are all just knocking the cover off the ball. Why don't we own more of this?" Mm -hmm. I say, "Well, those companies. It doesn't seem like it right now, but those companies do come and go over time. Mm -hmm. Those two, those companies do change hands at the top." Mm -hmm. That's not where your long-term performance comes from. Mm -hmm. Where it comes from is just what we talked about, value, profitability, smaller companies. So if we invest in those things, our probabilities of success increase. So I'm going to focus on the probabilities. And if you can't hear me focus on the probabilities, then I can't really be your advisor. You're not going to listen to me. So mm -hmm. we're trying to, trying to figure out who can hear and who can share those values out the, at the outset. That's how we that's how we have clients that we like to spend time with. And, not, and we don't have that guy calling up and say, hey, you know, 
how about more Bitcoin? How about more Bitcoin? I'm just like that. You're not my guy. Like go, mm -hmm. go find someone that's, that's what they're going to do. And mm -hmm. I don't, again, I know how to do it. I can talk about it. I can do my absolute best to say, you're not improving your probabilities here. It could be fun. You could make a ton of money. I don't know, but you're not improving your probabilities. And mm -hmm. that's what I'm about. It's improving probabilities. I love the conversation always around a values-based business and values-based uh, relationships within those businesses because they just work. As to your point that uh, you made earlier on, you just get to show up and be who you are and you're not trying to tap dance around personalities and what that might mean because you share, when you share common values, Everybody gets to show up and just show up as who they are. And uh, that just makes for, you know, clarity equals velocity. And that's really what's uh, important in the world of money because of the velocity of money is where money is often made and most often made. And these are great conversations to have. And I love it. Your book, Mindful Money, speaks to a number of those things, I believe. Uh, tell me a little bit about the book as we start to wind down here, Jonathan. Yes, yeah, so the first section is all about the illusions. The uh, second section is what we call the, you know, the pillars of happiness. And they're the things you know about, um, you know, sp spend time on quality relationships, um, have, you know, keep yourself accountable to your goals, which means obviously first you got to know your goals, meaning, meaningful work, um, you know, things like gratitude and optimism, things like generosity. And th these are all things that we know because again, psychologists, academics, priests, monks for thousands of years have been talking about these are the things that make life worth living. This is the source of well-being. This is the source of true happiness. The middle section of the book is focused on how do you figure out what makes you happy? Uh, and then the third section of the book kind of, kind of bookends or kind of brings an end to those two. What can you ignore? What should you pay attention to? Now, how do you put numbers to it? Mm -hmm. So the third section of the book helps people. At the end of the book, you should have a financial plan rudimentary, you know, yellow pad financial plan, but you can have a financial plan. And that's the hope was because I believe completely in the power of planning, I want to enable as many people as possible to actually go through the process of planning, whether or not they want to work with somebody, whether or not they want an advisor, whether they, whether or not they are ready for personal financial, financial advice, they can read a book. And at the end of the book, they can have a plan. And that's the um, that's the, that's what I think the point of the book is in the world. Beautiful. Now it's available on Amazon. Is it? Uh, do you have the? Do you have Audible? Do you do? Uh, do you have an Audible download by any chance? Dang it! No, I don't. Damn it's, it! Damn. <laughs> I, I yeah, keep thinking about doing it myself. Yeah, yeah I just yeah. I just have never done it. <laughs> a lot of work. Thanks involved. for poking that one though. <laughs> <laughs> so mindful money, awesome. So as we wind down, we have a little bit of fun with just some rapid fire questions, Jonathan. Uh, great conversation, and really appreciate uh, what you bring to the table in terms of thought process, philosophically, and along the way. Question I have for you: You're, you know, you talk about meditation. You've studied meditation. Uh, is that a daily practice for you? Yep. Since my brother died, honestly, it's been harder to sit yeah. for any length of time. But mm -hmm. but it's it'll come back and it'll it'll, it'll be something. I, I, I what I do is I actually literally, even though I, I can't focus and I can't sit for any length of time, I go and I sit on my zafu, mm -hmm. thirty seconds, stand up and walk away. So I have I have the practice still. It's just I can't, I can't focus. Yeah, you know something interesting about I've. Uh, 
Stephanie, my wife and I, Stephanie, have practiced meditation for many years. It kind of comes and goes, but we always go back to it, always. And uh, there's all sorts of reasons that you can be thrown off. But the reality of it is, is when we meditate, the best time to meditate is when we think we can't. And uh, and, and and I'm not, so I share that with you only as a reminder. Go back to your uh, meditation. Thank you. Do you share that thought, same thought process with your kids, with your wife? Do they, do they uh, join you in that kind of uh, meditative or meditation and that philosophy? My wife, no. Uh, but (laughs) my kids, I have I actually have had my kids you know come down and sit with me. Do they do it every day? Not even remotely. Someday they may come around to that. Not right now. That's beautiful. I love that. And what about physical? What's your kind? Do you have a practice, a physical practice? Do you train? Do you work out in the mornings? Do you work out at nights? Do you what how do you look after yourself physically that way? Twelve years ago. I uh now longer than that. It's been a long time. So I ballooned up to about 290 mm. and, and at 290 pounds. Um, and, and my wake up call was my dad's, my father's ski pants fit me and mm. he's a big guy. So I was like, okay, this is a problem. I gotta, <laughs> gotta get this under control. Yeah. Um, so, so I started doing, you know, late night TV P90X. I ordered it. Right. I did it for like eight years. Yeah. And so I, I'm down to, I got all the way down to like 205. Yeah. So I lost you know, a third of me. Yeah. Um, and now every single day, I don't do P90X anymore. My joints don't enjoy yeah. that as much, yeah. but every single day I get up today, today I rode, um, yeah. tomorrow morning, I'm going to take about a seven mile walk. Yeah. Um, you yeah. know, every single day I, I get up early, I meditate, try to meditate. I uh, do something physical. I read, I write, then I clean up and see my kids. And before they, you know, before they go to school, oh, what time do you get up in the morning? What are you an early riser? <laughs> so 12 years ago, I got up at 4.30 in the morning because my workouts yeah. were long every day. Yeah. Today, I get up at 5 or 5.30. Yeah, I'm, I'm that guy too. 5, 5.30 is pretty standard. Occasionally yeah. a little bit earlier and occasionally a little bit later. I really appreciate my sleep more these days, as in I want to make sure that I get a minimum of six and a half hours. That's always my target. And uh, every so often, I get seven, seven and a half. I go, well, that's cool. And yeah. uh, it doesn't happen often, but I enjoy it when it does. So some rapid fire questions as we wind down. Thanks for sharing. Uh, all of this with uh, us today, Jonathan. Appreciate it. Sure. Favorite swear word? F. You're, F you're an F bomber, really? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Me on most days as well, so that's okay. Do you have a favorite tune that you go to? A favorite song? Favorite band? Music? Music? Your thing? You know what? I have three CDs in my car. They've been there for a long, long, long time. Uh, not CDs. Whatever. Spotify lists. Yep. They're all Mumford and Sons. I love. I love Mumford and Sons too. I haven't listened to for a while. It's a good reminder. I got to pull them up. How about movie? Favorite movie? Oof. I'm a, a, you know, I'm a big fan of the Marvel universe. I'm a huge Star Wars Mm. fan. Mm. So So Disney, I like all Disney things. (laughs) (laughs) I, uh, I, I'm finding that I've, uh, I don't know, past several months I've lost. I don't even want to watch movies. I just, nothing really appeals to me these days. And I'm not sure why that is, but I like, I do like Marvel. I, I am a big fan of Marvel and Star Wars. So good choice there. I would, uh, I would kind of go along. It just tells everyone how old we are. That's all it is. (laughs) It does. If heaven exists, what do you want to hear God say when you get to the gates? Oh, come on in. Come on in. Welcome. Welcome. Beautiful. And Jonathan, finally, what are you grateful for today? Oh, geez. I mean, I'm grateful for today for this thing I'm always grateful for. Um, my my brother died on, died on June 17th. Uh, and from that day to this day, and I think every day forward, it'll all, it'll be about the people in my life. It'll be about my wife. It'll be about my kids. 
My parents have been amazing, even though they're struggling and they're suffering a lot. Uh, my nephews, Evan and Asher, amazing. My team at work, my community is pretty amazing, but it's just, it's really, I'm blessed with great people uh, mm. uh, everywhere in my life. That's fantastic. I'm always grateful for the guests that I uh, have on the show and the knowledge and the insights they share. Like you, I'm grateful for my family, always grateful for my wife and the RAIN community and our team is amazing. So Jonathan, thank you so much for joining me on today's Everyday Millionaire podcast and uh, look forward to talking to you again in the future. Patrick, it's been my pleasure. Thanks, man. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. If you found value in the podcast, please take the time to rate and review and share with others, share with your friends as it is my goal to always improve and to provide the highest value for you, the listener. If you have any comments, suggestions, or questions you'd like answered, please email me at ceo at raincanada.com. That's ceo at reincanada.com. I look forward to hearing from you. And until next time, Patrick out.